No matter how fell and monstrous the foe, the Blood Angels face it with courage, nobility, and honor. So do they shine like the brightest stars amidst the darkness and horror of battle. So do they burn away the foulness of the alien, the filth of the mutant, and the taint of the heretic with the righteous fires of their wrath. The Angelic Host The Blood Angels have always been staunch defenders of the Imperium. Yet, for all their accomplishments, they suffer from a fatal flaw. The Blood Angels carry an inner darkness that they must strive constantly to resist. It is this struggle that defines them, as much in their most glorious moments of victory as in their darkest hour of despair. Created during the legendary first founding, the Blood Angels occupied the vanguard of the Great Crusade, aiding the Emperor in his bid to reunite humanity's colonies scattered across the stars. Even then, their deeds were heroic, the Legion's battle brothers exemplifying the best that the Adeptus Astartes had to offer. The Blood Angels' accomplishments only reached new heights after they were reunited with their Primarch, Sanguinius. Angel-winged, beautiful in both body and mind, Sanguinius was arguably the greatest of his father's sons. Sanguinius's glory was that of a demigod, for he was a mighty warrior and an inspiring leader, and his sons followed him with unquestioning devotion. All through the days of the Great Crusade and into the dark madness of the Horus Heresy, the Blood Angels fought at their Primarch's side. Inspired by Sanguinius's divine presence, the Blood Angels remained staunch in the Emperor's defense to the very end. Their bolters blazed from the ramparts of the Imperial Palace even as the War Master came to seize his father's throne, and the Blood Angels were amongst the first loyalists to know of Chaos's defeat when Horus fell to the Emperor's wrath. For all their heroics, that conflict was to cost the Blood Angels dear. In the final, desperate attack upon Horus's battle barge, the Vengeful Spirit, Sanguinius was slain in battle with the War Master himself. His death was but one of many blows that the Imperium suffered on that dreadful day. Yet, for the Blood Angels, it was the most tragic by far. Sanguinius's sons shared a uniquely potent bond with their gene sire, and his violent end scarred the Blood Angels in both flesh and spirit. It was the death of the Primarch that is believed to have triggered the onset of the Red Thirst, a terrible flaw within the Legion's gene seed. This curse spread slowly through the Blood Angels and their successor chapters. It tainted them with madness in the millennia that followed, becoming a sorrowful secret that undermined their every valorous deed. The Blood Angels, 
and their successor chapters are renowned for their willingness to charge headlong into the guns of the foe. They face down the most suicidal odds, and their hunger for engaging in hand-to-hand combat is well known. Some have judged the Blood Angels over-eager for battle, calling them foolhardy, ill-disciplined, or even tainted. The truth is both more tragic and far nobler. The flaw caused by their Primarch's death is twofold. Its more common aspect is the excess of rage and violence known as the Red Thirst. It is a mark of shame to give in to this curse in any but the direst of circumstances. Consequently, the chapter's battle brothers continually strive to master the rage inside and embody the noble ideals of their fallen Primarch. Yet, no amount of self-control can save the sons of Sanguinius from the terrible madness known as the Black Rage. On the eve before battle, a Blood Angel may find himself gripped by apocalyptic visions. The sanity of the afflicted is shattered by a sudden sensory bombardment that plunges him into a spiral of blood madness from which death is the only release. It is almost inevitable that this fate will eventually overtake every blood angel. Its onset more a matter of when than if. In the face of this stark reality, each battle brother seeks to know a glorious death in battle rather than face the slow decline into bestial madness. The Blood Angel's heritage is not altogether a sorrowful one. They carry much of Sanguinius's grace and nobility within them, and echo his physical perfection. The Primarch's spiritual might also flows in his descendants' veins its potency only increasing as the millennia pass. The Blood Angels are thus numbered amongst the most physically gifted of all the Space Marine chapters. The power of the Blood Angels' librarians flows from the chapter's conflicted duality. One moment it will manifest itself in angelic miracles, the next in savage explosions of bloodthirsty brutality. Blood Angels librarians can easily use their minds to shield the innocent from danger, as they can to exsanguinate their enemies in sudden storms of gore. It is to the Blood Angels' credit that these formidable psychic abilities remain under their control and are used purely for the good of the Imperium. Good intentions only go so far, however, especially in a time as dark as this. For all their nobility, the Blood Angels and their successors are chapters in decline. Each year brings a deepening of the madness a worsening of the curse within their blood. Among some successor chapters, 
this phenomenon is especially pronounced, for their gene seed was harvested at a time when the flaw had already become far advanced. Tales abound of whole chapters slipping slowly into blood-mad insanity, edging ever closer to the precipice as their inner darkness gains control. Names such as Knights of the Blood or the Crimson Swords have gone down in infamy, declared renegade by the Adeptus Terra, or completely wiped out amid unwinnable conflicts of their own creation. Indeed, were any chapter to have fallen to the ruinous powers, it should surely have been the Blood Angels. Their genetic curse, coupled with their powers of warpcraft, would seem to make them prime candidates. There are those amongst the Inquisition who are only too quick to make such assertions, and who watch the chapter keenly for signs of their inevitable fall. Yet, the Blood Angels have remained loyal for 10,000 years. They harbor no more intent toward heresy now than they did on the day the War Master fell from grace. Though they still stand proud, the Blood Angels are far from untouched by the creeping degeneration that afflicts their successors. The chapter must work harder and harder to maintain its fighting strength, for new recruits are lost just as frequently to the Black Rage as are veterans. Meanwhile, more battle brothers than ever choose glorious death over ignominious madness, their reckless sacrifices leaving those who remain spread thinner still. Worse is the intensify of the Black Rage. Once the chapter would lose perhaps a handful of battle brothers to this phenomenon in any given campaign. In recent years, it has not been unheard of for whole formations to plunge into madness. In the closing years of M41, it seemed as though the Blood Angel's doom had come at last. A tide of rapacious Xenos known as Tyranids fell upon their homeworld of Baal and its twin moons of Ball Prime and Ball Secundus. This alien super-swarm was a tendril of the unutterably vast horror known as High Fleet Leviathan. Its warrior organisms numbered in the hundreds of billions. Its alien hunger was insatiable. The Lord of the Blood Angels, Commander Dante, recalled all those warriors he could to fight for Ball. Reinforced by many of their successor chapters, the Blood Angels determined to stand to the last in defense of their chapter planet and its moons. The battle that ensued was immense. Horrific violence was unleashed on every front. Amidst the irradiated deserts of Baal, the Blood Angel's fortress monastery was besieged, 
beset by wave upon wave of foes, while on Baal Prime and Secundus the fighting grew ever more desperate. Hundreds of Sanguinius's sons fell. It seemed that their end had come. At that crucial juncture, the great rift split wide, and when the warp storms passed, the Tyranid fleet was gone. In its place were the imperial ships of the Indomitus Crusade, led by Rabute Gilliman himself. The armies of the Imperium came to the aid of the beleaguered Blood Angels, and the Tyranids were defeated at last. In the battle's wake, a time of rebuilding began. With it came hope unlooked for, and the possibility that the Blood Angels and their successors might yet be saved from their slow decline. Origins of the Blood Angels The Space Marine Legions were the creation of the Emperor of Mankind. This deific being crafted incredible warriors to help him conquer the galaxy. Amongst these legions were the Blood Angels, who from their earliest days fought staunchly in the service of the Emperor and Primarch both. Like all the great Space Marine Legions, the Blood Angels were born from the dying flames of the Age of Strife. The Risen Emperor had united the warring factions of Terra. Yet his vision did not end with one world, or even with the solar system in which it lay. His goal was nothing less than the reunification of scattered mankind. To bring the sundered worlds and realms of humanity under a single beneficent rule. To do this, you would need a mighty army. An army unlike any the galaxy had ever seen. An army whose warriors knew no other loyalty than to their emperor. And whose bodies and minds were hardened to withstand unceasing war. The Emperor had long ago refined the techniques of genetic manipulation, and he set these skills to work once again, forging twenty extraordinary super-warriors to be his generals in the coming campaign. Thus were born the Primarchs of the Space Marine Legions, incredible beings whose martial powers were to be second only to those of the Emperor himself. Yet, as with all great labors, the genesis of the Space Marines did not go entirely according to design. The Emperor's plans for his Primarchs was to be undone even before it had properly begun. Without warning, the Primarchs disappeared scattered throughout the galaxy by an unknown force. Though the loss of the Primarchs was a bitter blow, the Emperor was not dismayed for long. They could not be recreated, but their genetic records remained, 
and from these, the Emperor created the Space Marine Legions, the armies he had always intended his Primarchs to lead. It was at the head of these legions that the Emperor began his great crusade in earnest. Setting out from Terra, the Emperor led the Space Marines on a glorious campaign that sought to restore mankind to greatness. No foe could withstand the onslaught of the Emperor's crusade. Despots, aliens, and demons all fell to the relentless advance of the legions. Worlds previously enslaved and terrorized flocking willingly to the banner of the nascent Imperium. It was in the course of the Great Crusade that the lost Primarchs were at last reunited with their Emperor, taking up their rightful places as the masters of the legions. No mere warriors were the Primarchs. They were also shrewd and canny leaders of men, and under their command, the righteous might of the Space Marines increased a hundredfold. So it was that the forces of the Emperor surged onwards as never before, an unstoppable projection of humanity's will. New battlefronts opened up across the galaxy, and worlds were reclaimed by the thousand. Throughout it all, the Blood Angels and their Primarch Sanguinius fought at the Emperor's side, serving as honor guard to their beloved creator. Driven by fiery temperament, the Blood Angels swiftly earned fearsome reputation as shock troopers, which came to feed a rivalry between them and the World Eaters Legion. Yet in truth, the Blood Angels were never as berserk as the World Eaters, for the wise influence of Sanguinius tempered their bloodlust. Though he was yet in the early days of his legend, Sanguinius was thought to be the noblest of the Primarchs, and was ever deep in the Emperor's council. Even Horus, proud war master of the Great Crusade, and Primarch of the Luna Wolves, sensed a purity of spirit in Sanguinius that he could never match. A oneness with their father that no other Primarch could ever hope to achieve. Whilst many of his brothers fought the Great Crusade solely out of the joy of battle, Sanguinius fought to secure the golden era of peace and prosperity that would surely follow. His vision was the Emperor's, a hope of mankind united in peace and prosperity. Alas, it was not to be. Just as it seemed that the Emperor's dream could be fulfilled, the Great Crusade ended in the most terrible and unimaginable way. It came to pass that Horus, trusted war master of the Great Crusade, turned his back upon the Emperor and embraced the shifting glories of the Chaos Gods. To him rallied near half of the armies of mankind including many of the Space Marine Legions. 
On what should have been the brink of a new age of glory, humanity was plunged into the bleakest civil war it had ever known. Untold billions of lives were sacrificed upon the altar of battle, every soul feeding the rapacious hungers of the chaos gods. If the Great Crusade was mankind's finest hour, then the Horus Heresy was surely its blackest. Brother fought brother, with quarter neither offered nor given. Heroes were slain, worlds burned, and the Emperor's dreams of peace were shattered forever. In the midst of this darkness, the Blood Angels never wavered, but held true at the Emperor's side. Sanguinius stepped into the void left by Horus's desertion, assuming command of the Emperor's loyal forces. In doing so, he thrust the Blood Angels into the brutal forefront of the fighting. The rivalry with the World Eaters now escalated into bitter enmity, as the two legions found themselves serving different masters and their confrontations were to be amongst the hardest fought of the bloodiest of wars. It is said that Horus hated and feared Sanguinius more than any of his brothers, and wove many strategies to ensnare or slay him, though all failed. Yet for all the might of the Emperor, for every effort of Sanguinius and the remaining loyalist Primarchs, the forces of Horus drove all before them. In too short a time, the Emperor of Mankind was assailed within his great palace on Terra. With only a comparative handful of loyal warriors at his side, he confronted the host of demons, traitors, and corrupted space marines that fought at the treacherous Warmaster's side. The Blood Angels led the defense of the Emperor's palace, never once losing heart despite the terrible odds stacked against them. Alongside their battle brothers of the Imperial Fists Legion, the valorous yet overmatched soldiers of the Imperial Army and the grim Adeptus Custodes, the Blood Angels held the walls of that final bastion. Yet the war could not be won, or even survived, through defense alone. In a final, desperate gambit, the Emperor took the fight to Horus's great battle barge, the Vengeful Spirit, teleporting into the heart of the enemy stronghold with the Blood Angels and Imperial Fists at his side. Only Space Marines could have withstood the horrors of that demon-haunted starship, and even they were sorely pressed. Sanguinius was swiftly separated from his comrades, and so the legend tells, was brought through artifice before the treacherous Horus. The Warmaster offered Sanguinius one final chance to renounce the Emperor, to join with Horus's inevitable victory. Yet the Primarch of the Blood Angels held true 
and refused. Thus rejected, Horus flew into a rage and attacked. Even at the peak of his powers, Sanguinius could not have hoped to prevail against the monster Horus had become. And the Primarch was weary and wounded from his travails on Terra. When the Emperor at last entered Horus's sanctum, he found his rebellious war master standing above Sanguinius's broken, bleeding corpse. In the battle that followed, Horus was finally vanquished, though the Emperor too was cast down near to death. There are many tales told of this final battle, and though the exact facts are long lost, one detail remains constant in all the recitations through all the millennia since. Despite the Emperor's great power, he could never have bested Horus had not the blade of Sanguinius wrought a chink in the War Master's armor. The Imperium was forever changed in the wake of Horus's defeat. No longer would the Beneficent Emperor take a martial role in mankind's defense, for only the life-giving machineries of the Golden Throne now sustained his shattered body. The reconstruction of his empire and the final rout of the traitor forces would now fall to the surviving loyalist primarchs, men such as Rogel Dorn of the Imperial Fists and Rabute Gilliman of the Ultramarines. Indeed, it was Gilliman who would have the greatest lasting effect upon the now leaderless Blood Angels. Through the Codex Astartes, that great treatise on the restructuring and ordering of the Space Marines, intended to prevent forever the danger of massed rebellion on the scale seen during the heresy. Gilliman's legacy would reshape the Blood Angels' legion into chapters that defend the Imperium to this day. Mankind had suffered, and the Imperium was nearly destroyed. Yet the Blood Angels would bear that pain longer and more deeply than most. Sanguinius's death heralded the awakening of the Red Thirst, and its curse would change the nature of the chapter forever. Cradle of Angels The Blood Angels are shaped not only by the personality and deeds of Sanguinius, but also by the nature of their chapter planet, Ball. Few worlds in the entire Imperium could have as devastating an impact on the human soul as Ball and its inhabited moons, Ball Prime and Ball Secundus. In ancient days, Ball and its moons had Earth-like atmospheres. Ball itself was a world of rust-red deserts, but its moons were paradises for mortal men where folk lived in harmony with nature and pursued lives of ease and freedom. The people of Baal became exceptional artisans and spent their time creating mighty monuments, 
carving the mountains themselves into statues of their rulers and their gods. They even ventured onto the surface of Desolate Ball itself, leaving colonies and breathtaking edifices in their wake. No one knows exactly what happened to change this idyllic state of affairs. All that is certain is that during the fearful events that marked the downfall of human society and the end of the dark age of technology, the moons of Ball suffered terribly. Ancient weapons of terrifying prophecy were unleashed. Cities became plains of smoldering glass. Lush grasslands became polluted deserts. Seas became poisoned lakes of toxic sludge. The inhabitants of Ball died in their millions, and it looked as if humanity might become extinct in the Ball system. But somehow, people survived. They clung precariously to life on the edges of radioactive deserts. They became scavengers, picking through these scattered bones of their own once great civilization. In the dark time that followed the collapse of all order, some became worse than scavengers, and in their desperation turned to cannibalism. Over the course of the following centuries, the accumulated chemical and radioactive toxins that built up in the survivors' bodies led them to devolving into mutants, shambling parodies of the men their forefathers had once been. There were some who held on to their humanity and preserved a semblance of sane behavior, but these were the embattled few amongst a new and savage culture that evolved amid the ruins of the old. The only social unit left was the tribe. For human and mutant cannibal alike, the only folk they could rely on were their own kin. The people of the ball system became nomads, shifting from place to place, picking the runes clean, warring to preserve the spoils they had gathered. The tribes fought constant wars, webs of alliances ever shifting as each tribe strove for supremacy and survival. Extinction awaited the slow and the weak. Where once the moons had been near paradise, now they were living hells. For the few surviving humans, Existence was a constant struggle. They wandered the surface in ramshackle vehicles, hoping their patched-together radiation suits would save them, praying they would never hear the ominous telltale click of their rad counters. For a time, it seemed that humanity was doomed, that soon there would only be an endless desert ruled over by feuding mutant tribes. Then, out of the star-strewn heavens, came hope. After the Emperor created the Primarchs, the forces of chaos made off with the infants and carried them through the warp. Unable to destroy the Primarchs because of the powerful protections laid on them by the Empire, 
the demonic powers nonetheless did their best to alter the emperor's work to their own evil ends. Thus it was that even the best of the emperor's creation became corrupted at the outset. The pod that housed Sanguinius came to rest upon Baal Secundus, at the place now known as Angel's Fall. The infant Primarch was found by one of the wandering tribes of humans, who called themselves the Folk of Pure Blood, or simply, the Blood. The young Sanguinius's life almost came to an end then and there, for the touch of chaos had changed him. Tiny vestigial wings like those of an angel emerged from his back. Many wanted to kill him as a mutant, though in all other ways he was as perfect a child as had ever been seen. Eventually, innate compassion prevailed, and he was spared. The infant Sanguinius was a prodigy. He grew quickly and learned everything his parents could teach him. After three weeks, Sanguinius was as large as a child of three years. It is said that at this age he slew a giant fire scorpion with his bare hands, and that he never once showed fear at the colossal beast's onset. As Sanguinius grew, his wings grew also, changing from vestigial things into mighty pinions that could bear him aloft into the desert air. By the time he was a year old, he looked and acted like a man in his youthful prime. He could walk without a rad suit in the most poisonous of Balsacundus's deserts, and could shatter massive boulders with a single blow of his outstretched hand. In the use of all weapons, he soon surpassed his teachers. When a wandering band of mutants surprised the tribe, Sanguinius slew them all, although they outnumbered him over a hundred. This was the first time the members of the blood had ever seen him truly angry, for he felt his comrades' lives were in danger. When the blood rage overtook him, Sanguinius was indeed terrible to behold. His mighty Primarch powers awoke to fullness, and a nimbus of light played about his head. Sanguinius soon rose to leadership of the blood, and under his guidance they rolled back the mutant tide. For a time, mankind had a respite on the moon of Balsacundus. Sanguinius was worshipped as a god by his followers, who felt that he could once again create a paradise in that dreadful land. Yet it was shortly thereafter that fate intervened once more. The emperor had been questing across the galaxy in search of his lost children, and his incredible psychic powers led him to Baal. His ship landed at the conclave of the blood, and he walked straight to Sanguinius's abode. Some amongst the Primarchs are said to have fought against the Emperor when they first met, but this was not the case with Sanguinius. He immediately recognized the Emperor for who he was, and bent his knee before the Lord of Mankind. 
the emperor raised him up, looked upon his people, and saw they were fair and noble. The best of the warriors he offered to transform into space marines. The others were to be honorably left behind to defend mankind's birthright upon Baal Secundus. Thus, they were the Blood Angels, and their Primarch finally made whole. They joined the Emperor's fleet and sailed across the Sea of Stars to participate in the Great Crusade. Since the time of Sanguinius, the Blood Angels have recruited from among the tribes of the Blood on Baal Secundus and Baal Prime, where a colony was established shortly after the time of the Horus Heresy. Youths from the Blood take part in games and tournaments, facing many hazards as they race across the desert to fight and do battle against one another. These contests are held once per generation at Angel's Fall, where a mighty statue of Sanguinius now observes the proceedings. Traditionally, the time of challenge is announced by heralds who visit each tribe in flying chariots. Contestants must make their way to Angel's Fall across the Rad Deserts, a process that weeds out the weakest. The hazards of the desert are many, and it takes a youth of extraordinary skill and courage to even reach the place of the challenge. Once there, they must vie for the 50 or so places that are available. Those who succeed are taken up in the sky chariots. Those who fail are left behind to either guard the place of testing or to make their way back to their own tribes. Those youths accepted as aspirants are taken to the Blood Angels Fortress Monastery on Ball itself. There they see great wonders. They look for the first time on the unmasked faces of their future brother space marines and note with some consternation their sharp eye teeth and sleek beautiful features. It has to be said that the recruits are far from handsome at this stage. Most aspirants bear marks of their hard lives. It is impossible for an ordinary man to dwell on those barren moons and not feel the terrible kiss of radiation. Some are marked by stigmata, while most are short and stunted, their growth stifled by malnutrition, their flesh disfigured by lesions and carcinomas. All the aspirants are left to observe vigil in the great chapel of the chapter before drinking from the sanguinary chalice brought to them by the sanguinary priests. Slumber soon overtakes them, and the aspirants are borne by servitors to the apothecarian, where the gene seed of sanguinius is implanted in their recumbent bodies. From the apothecarian, the aspirants are taken to the hall of the sarcophagi, and each is placed within a mighty golden sarcophagus, Life support nodes are attached to them, and for the next year they are fed intravenously, with a mixture of nutrients and the blood of Sanguinius, while the gene seed does its work. Many of the aspirants die at this stage. 
their bodies unable to cope with the strain of changes that now overtake them. Those who live grow swift and true, echoing the rapid growth of their Primarch. They put on muscle mass and acquire the extra internal organs that mark a true space marine. At this time, too, they have strange dreams, for the gene seed carries within it the memories of Sanguinius. Thus does the Primarch's essence begin to permeate the souls of his warriors. Afterwards, when sleeping and sometimes when awake, these dreams return to haunt the Blood Angels. When the aspirants emerge from their sarcophagi, they are forever changed. They are tall, strong, and superhumanly powerful. Their restructured bodies and features have taken on a beauty that echoes that of their angelic forebear. Their senses are keener, their muscles stronger than tempered steel. They are ready to begin their training as space marines. The Heritage of Sanguinius Every space marine chapter is defined by the legacy of their Primarch. Through their gene seed, these mighty beings would shape their sons' bodies, while through teachings and philosophy, they would influence their minds. Yet none amongst the Primarchs would have as profound an effect upon their progeny as did Sanguinius. Sanguinius was always a visionary. From his earliest days, he desired to lead his people to a new and better life. When he joined the Great Crusade, he did not abandon this vision, but instead brought it to a far greater arena. He wanted to improve the lot of all mankind and see a lasting end to the strife brought on by the collapse of human civilization at the close of the Dark Age of Technology. Sanguinius was not merely blessed with a futurist philosophy. He was also gifted with the power of prophecy, able to see visions of what lay ahead. It is almost certain that he knew he was going to his death when he boarded Horus's battle barge, and yet he went anyway. Whether Sanguinius did this out of fatalism or loyalty to the emperor is a point often debated by imperial theologians, but it is not in doubt among the blood angels. They will say that he went out of duty knowing full well what the outcome would be. The outlook of Sanguinius did much to shape his chapter. There is a powerful mystical streak to many of the Blood Angels' traditions, and this can only have come from the spiritual teachings of the winged Primarch. Sanguinius also indoctrinated his followers with a strong belief that things can be changed for the better. After all, the process of transforming a starving scavenger into a tall, proud, and handsome warrior is living proof of the tenet that courage, refinement, and nobility can be shaped from the crudest clay. 
This belief can be seen in all things the blood angels do. They strive for perfection. Their works of art are things of beauty. Their martial disciplines are practiced unceasingly. Yet, as the flaw within their gene seed has become more evident, this belief in change has turned into an altogether darker thing. They see within it the evidence of mankind's capacity for folly and destruction. Their doctrines are permeated with a sense of morality and the fallen greatness of man. The Blood Angels are among the longest-lived of all the Space Marines. One of the peculiarities of their aberrant gene seed is that it has vastly increased the lifespan of those who bear it. So it is not unheard of for Blood Angels to live for a thousand years. Indeed, the current commander of the chapter, Dante, is known to have lived for more than a millennia and is almost certainly far older. These vastly extended lifespans allow the Blood Angels to perfect their techniques in art as well as in war. Providing blood madness does not take them. They have centuries in which to hone the disciplines to which they turn their minds. This accounts for the fact that the Blood Angels' armor and banners are amongst the most ornate of all the Space Marine chapters. Perhaps the strangest of all the chapter's traditions is the habit of sleeping whenever possible in the sarcophagi used to create them. In recent years, the sanguinary priests have created filters that purify the blood of their brother Space Marines. While the blood angels sleep in their sarcophagi, the blood is cleansed and purified. The chapter thus hopes to slow the process of degeneration brought on by the flaw. Although it is known to but a few, the Blood Angels are a dying chapter, for they are afflicted with the dreadful curse known as the flaw. Each time a battle looms, they must court the twin dangers of the Red Thirst and the monstrous Black Rage. The former robs the Blood Angels of their nobility, clouding their minds with an irresistible blood madness that reduces them to little more than wild beasts. The latter is far worse, however, for once the Black Rage claims a son of Sanguinius, they are lost forever, body and soul. Some claim that the root of the flaw lies within Sanguinius's mutated nature. They imply that he must have been the worst afflicted by the powers of chaos when the infant Primarchs were stolen away from the Emperor's laboratory on Terra. Other scholars claim that the flaw lies in the process used to create new generations of Blood Angels. They assert that it has crept in because the Blood Angels use the process known as insanguination to activate the gene seed. All Space Marine chapters use gene seed to trigger and control the processes that transform an ordinary mortal into a Space Marine. The gene seed contains viral machines that rebuild the body according to the biological template contained within. 
and impart a flicker of the glory of the Primarch that sired each chapter. However, at the time when the Space Marine Legions were created, the process was still highly experimental, and many different ways of controlling and managing the transformation were tried. In the Blood Angel's case, the chosen method was ensanguination. This process was originally triggered by injecting the aspirants with tiny samples of their Primarch's own blood, some of which was preserved in the Red Grail after Sanguinius' death. The living blood could not be kept this way for long, and so it was injected into the veins of the sanguinary priests. In this way, they became living hosts to the power of Sanguinius. To this day, drinking the blood of the assembled sanguinary priests from the Red Grail is part of the induction ritual for all Blood Angel priests. It is from these same priests that blood is taken to begin the transformation of aspirants into Space Marines. It is possible that over the countless generations since the time of the Horus Heresy, these cells have mutated slowly at first, but more quickly in recent years, and that errors in replication have resulted in the flaw. Whatever the reason for the flaw, it is certain that its hold over the Blood Angels has become ever stronger, and their tendency towards self-destruction, madness, even greater. Yet, in this darkest age of the Imperium, comes a sliver of hope, for the sons of Sanguinius, in the form of the Primaris Space Marines. As the initial wave of Primaris Battle Brothers joined Gilliman's attack to relieve the defenders on Ball, the Blood Angels and their successors stared in wonder. Here were warriors who shared the undeniable heritage of Sanguinius, the same nobility of aspect and handsome features yet they seemed able to restrain the fury of the Red Thirst with instinctive ease and showed no signs of the black rage that so cursed the other sons of the Angel. Since their arrival, the Primaris Space Marines have come under intense scrutiny from the Sanguinary Priests, chief amongst them Corbulo, the master of their order. If as seems possible, the Primaris Battle Brothers prove resistant to the worst excesses of the flaw. They may yet represent the salvation of all of Sanguinius' sons. Deep within the psyche of every blood angel is a destructive yearning, a battle fury, and blood hunger that must be held in abeyance in every waking moment. Few Battle Brothers can hold this red thirst in check unceasingly. It is far from unknown for Blood Angels to temporarily succumb to its lure at the height of battle. The red thirst is the Blood Angels' darkest secret and greatest curse, but it is also their greatest salvation, for it brings with it a humility and understanding of their own failings which make them truly the most noble of the Space Marines. 
The fate of those unfortunates overtaken completely by the red thirst is known only to the chapter itself. There are tales of a secret chamber atop the tower of Amero on Ball of howling cries that demand the blood of the living. But none are willing to say for certain what secrets lie hidden in this haunted, desolate place. There have been incidents when the blood angels have been stationed on distant worlds where members of the local population have gone missing only to turn up later drained of blood. It is possible that this is the work of cultists seeking to discredit the chapter. It may even be that some of the more superstitious local citizens have taken to offering up sacrifices to their godlike visitors. It may also be possible that these folk have been killed by blood angels overcome by the red thirst. Blood angels are unique amongst the space marines in that deeply ingrained in their gene seed is the encoded experience of their primarch. And the most deeply imprinted of all is the memory of Sanguinius's final battle with Horus. Sometimes on the eve of battle, an event or circumstance will trigger this race memory, and the Battle Brother's mind is suddenly wrenched into the distant past. The Black Rage overcomes the Blood Angel as the memories and consciousness of Sanguinius intrude upon his mind. And dire events 10,000 years old flood into the present. A warrior overcome with the Black Rage appears half-mad with fury. He is unable to distinguish past from present and does not recognize his comrades. He may believe he is Sanguinius upon the eve of his destruction and the bloody battles of the Horse Heresy are raging all around him. Such a battle brother stands at the end of his travails for his path leads only to the Death Company, where he and the chapter's other damned souls will fight one final battle in Sanguinius's name. Ordering the Host At first glance, it might seem odd that a legion so proud of its traditions would set aside its individuality, but the events of the Horus Heresy had shaken the Blood Angels to their core. The Blood Angels were thus amongst the first Space Marines to adopt Robute Gilliman's Codex Astartes. In the aftermath of Horus's defeat on Terra, the death of Sanguinius left no clear line of succession. Factions within the Blood Angels formed around potential candidates. In addition, the flaw was slowly making its presence felt, further muddying the Legion's future. Ultimately, it was Ascalon, sole survivor of the Sanguinary Guard, who drove the Blood Angel's destiny onward. Ascalon, who clearly saw that the Blood Angels had more pressing worries than organizational doctrine, ensured the division of the Blood Angel's legion into chapters that endure today. These were the Blood Angels themselves who maintained the Old Legion's heraldry and traditions. The Flesh Terrors, the Angels Vermilion, 
the angels in Carmine and the angels Sanguine. What became of Ascalon himself after this point is unrecorded, but his legacy lives on in the chapters he created. The Blood Angels and their successor chapters adhere closely to the Codex Astartes as the flaw allows. They recognize the Codex's strictures as a form of discipline that can be used to restrain the Red Thirst. Accordingly, each chapter has a nominal strength of 1,000 Battle Brothers under arms, further divided into 10 companies of roughly 100 Space Marines each. The first company is home to the chapter's most experienced veterans, all of its battle brothers steeped in decades, if not centuries, of constant warfare. The second through fifth companies are the chapter's backbone, the battle companies who form the core of any strike force typically comprise six battle line squads, two close support squads, and two fire support squads. The remaining companies are reserve and training formations of one sort or another. Companies six and seven are battle line companies, each consisting of ten battle line squads. The eighth and ninth companies are specialist formations, composed of close support squads and fire support squads, respectively. These companies are rather more limited in their tactical scope and are deployed only when an overwhelmingly single-minded approach is required. Finally, the tenth company is seen by many as the future of the chapter, for it is here that scouts hone their skills in the space marine way of war. In the wake of the battle for Ball, the Blood Angels and many of their successors began heavy programs of recruitment to recoup their losses, leading to them increasing the size of their tenth companies two or threefold. Though each company can fight as a separate unit, a Blood Angel strike force will often be composed of several squads from different companies assembled on an ad hoc basis according to the mission at hand. Such strike forces are normally given code names, such as Bloodspear, Liberator, or Primarch's Wrath. Nonetheless, a strike force will inevitably be referenced by the company from which most of its personnel are drawn, or the officer that leads it. The company that forms the core of such a strike force can be reinforced by auxiliary squads drawn from the reserve companies. Such squads will often become the 11th squad and upwards of that company for the duration of the strike force's action. In addition to the personal armory and weaponry required by its battle brothers, each company, save the 10th, also maintains a host of support vehicles. These range from Rhino and Razorback transports to bikes and land speeders. Such tools are drawn upon whenever the tactical situation requires. This allows even a single Blood Angels company to fulfill a multitude of tactical and strategic roles, 
Unusually for a Space Marine chapter, the Blood Angels command sufficient land raiders to deploy these mighty vehicles as line transports rather than elite support units. How the Blood Angels acquired so many land raiders is a mystery outside the chapter. Perhaps more of their vehicles survived the Horus Heresy intact. Or perhaps the Blood Angels were once closer allies of the Adeptus Mechanicus than their current strained relations would suggest. The rule of the Blood Angels falls to the chapter master and his council. In the wake of the Great Rift, Rebuta Gilliman has expanded their responsibilities beyond the chapter, appointing them to act as one of the foremost imperial authorities in the Imperium Nihilus. A vast area in the galactic north racked by warp storms and beyond the easy reach of Terra. Most seats at the high table are taken by the brother captains who command the chapter's companies. Some, however, belong to senior officers whose injuries are too great for continued combat, but whose wisdom still holds great value. Such officers command the chapter's vital support institutions, such as the armory, the fleet, and the ongoing recruitment of fresh neophytes. Though ultimate power rests with the chapter master, the council are often called upon to act in their master's absence should he be slain or is himself away on a campaign. In addition to their role on the council, each officer will also have an assigned title and duties necessary for the smoothing run of the chapter. Some such titles, such as Master of the Watch, are drawn from the pages of the Codex Astartes. Others, including the Lord of Skyfall and the Shield of Ball, have sprung from the Blood Angel's unique nature. Unlike most other Codex chapters, the Blood Angel's Sanguinary Priesthood, the Blood Angel's Apothecaries, and Reclusium are also a part of the Chapter Command, rather than the subordinate organizations that would normally be the case. This structure means that the Sanguinary High Priest and High Chaplain take joint temporary rule in the event of the Chapter Master's death, rather than the rank automatically passing to the Captain of the First Company. This tradition arose during M35, when Captain Kalil rose to the rank of Chapter Master and succumbed almost immediately to the Black Rage, throwing the Blood Angels into a spiritual and organizational crisis. By holding temporary command, the High Chaplain and Sanguinary High Priest contest the will and worthiness of the new candidate to ensure that such a rash and unfortunate appointment does not occur again. 